0: Today's episode of the Sidious Mag Podcast on the Sidious Mag Podcast Network is brought to you by Gooder Sunglasses. I love Gooder, and if you've seen any photos of me running throughout the pandemic or the past couple months, I've been rocking Gooder Sunglasses. They are super comfortable. They don't slip or bounce around while you're running. Right now, it's the summertime. It's getting super hot. You're sweating a lot, and in some cases, your glasses tend to fog up these do not they come in super fun colors and styles that actually look good they have fun names my personal favorite is a ginger soul they're black and they're polarized and they're super light the best part about all of it is that gooder sunglasses are ridiculously affordable and start at just 25 dollars a pair gooder is generously offering our listeners Nothing. Absolutely nothing at all. No discount is needed when they're already the most affordable performance shades on the planet. So I've put together a list of my personal favorites. You can go ahead and check them out. Go to goodercom slash Sidious. That's G-O-O-D-R.com Sidious. Look good. Run gooder. Legs are feeling good. Eyes are feeling gooder. That might have to be my new hashtag. My guest for today's episode is Gwen Berry, who raised her fist on the podium of the Pan-American Games after winning the gold medal in the hammer throw last year. Her protest against racial and social injustice in America landed her a 12-month probation from the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. So after nationwide protests broke out at the end of May, I caught up with Gwen for an interview on Sports Illustrated in which I asked her, would she do it again in 2021 once her probation is up? And she said she would. So on social media, she took it a step further by demanding an apology from USOPC CEO Sarah Hershland, especially after they had released a statement saying that the USOPC stands with, quote, they stand with those who demand equality. I mean, kind of ironic. So they had a phone call where Hershland apologized for the effects of the decision to put Gwen on probation. But as she'll discuss on this podcast, she is still on probation. A little backstory on Gwen. She grew up in Ferguson, Missouri, and then she marched with protesters in St. Louis in 2014 after Michael Brown was shot and killed by former police officer Darren Wilson. That death ignited weeks of unrest and conversation about race relations between black people and police officers, but Wilson was never prosecuted. In 2020, Gwen is still taking to the streets to protest George Floyd's death, Breonna Taylor's death, Ahmaud Arbery's death, the work is going on and on. Gwen will not be silenced. And in this podcast, we discuss what the past couple of weeks have been like for her, the conversations that are happening among elite athletes, possibly protesting in 2021, and much, much more. So Gwen is definitely emerging as a leader trying to make social change through sport. I will include the link to the Sports Illustrated piece, which is a good companion to this podcast, in the show notes. So without further ado, here is... Gwen Berry. All right, now we welcome on Gwen Berry. Gwen, uh, you know, maybe it was like two weeks ago when we spoke, uh, I asked you how you were feeling and you said anxious, sleepless, on edge, you don't feel safe, no one feels comfortable. Now that you've had maybe two or so weeks, of just watching everything going on in the news and just seeing the protests, participating in the protests, are you feeling a little bit better?
1: Yes, I can say that I have been sleeping (laughs) lately. um, I do feel less anxious and I do feel a little hopeful. I feel like a lot has transpired in the last two weeks and um, everything that I've seen has been pretty promising. I think the most important thing is just to maintain momentum. Like we have to have to have to maintain momentum or else all of this will honestly just get swept under the rug like every trend and um you know we'll start back from scratch again so i think that's important what
0: What was it like for you to to get out to the protest we spoke the day before you're finally gonna go out there but what did you see and and what was the emotion i guess from from everyone
1: um it was it was pretty crazy because b- me being an empath i just felt like the emotions were so real like they were raw and uncut. Nothing like you can see in like in a documentary or a movie. Like it was real emotion, real passion, real frustration, um, real tears. You know, it was, it was just, it was crazy. Like how many people were out there uh, being vulnerable and just displaying their emotions for everyone to see. No one held back. And that was great. Like I really just sat back a lot. I did, you know, I did march, I did yell, I did scream, you know, and I did hold up my sign. But for, for the majority of it, I just watched and, you know, I just saw some amazing, amazing acts of uh, kindness, compassion, but I also saw anger and rage. It was interesting.
0: What would, what did your sign say?
1: So I had one sign that says, um, how can someone who's never been poor, Trump, speak for the poor? And then on the other side, I said, um, after this, we must follow the rules. So we have to play by the rules. Then I said, um, please vote or do research on voting um, to, to put people in power to support the Black agenda.
0: Why did you pick those two? And there's just so many different, you know, phrases and, and things that people are, you know, putting out there.
1: Mm-hmm. I feel like um, the first sign that um, I took the picture with, um, how can somebody who's never been poor speak for the poor? I think that resonates with a lot of people because let's face it, majority of the United States of America lives below class, um, middle-class and below and middle-class isn't, isn't, isn't even, isn't even middle-class and especially our black and brown community, people in our communities, they are, they are poor. Um, and I feel like we're, we're governed by uh, a bunch of people who have never been poor. So how can they make decisions for us? How can they know what's best for us when they've never walked in our shoes or lived our lives? I think that's important for people to understand that um, white supremacy is is a, a force that um, you know speaks for everybody, and that's insane. Um, and then the the other the other piece um, with the voting, um, I feel like a lot of people don't understand that our local and state um um organ uh organizations basically they um those are the ones who are on the ground, so those are the offices that we have to go into and we have to vote into because those are the people who control the police officers, not necessarily um you know federal elections and all that that's you know that's above that, so we have to go to our state and local governments to to make our voices heard
0: stressing the importance of elections. In your hometown in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, there's some great news. I think what was it the first black mayor, a female mayor, was was elected?
1: Yes, yes, the the first black female mayor. Yep,
0: and that what was,
1: was I, that was a big feat. I I guess like it was crazy.
0: What was the Ferguson that you grew up with like?
1: Um, I feel like I was I was kind of naive, so I, I can say it was for me. I didn't see a lot of things, I can't lie. I didn't see a lot, but I did hear about a lot because my uncle, he was older than me. And so I know he, he used to always come home and tell my grandmother that you know he was being harassed. Him and his friends were always being harassed when they went to the parks, when they went to play basketball, when they just walked the streets, when they walked throughout the neighborhoods. And I never really understood where he was coming from until you know I got older. But um, for me, you know, it was it was poor, impoverished neighborhoods, you know, kids running around everywhere, you know, just everybody just trying to live life.
0: For you, the introduction to sport. How important was that? And how did you how did you get into it? Because your father was an athlete.
1: So my father was an athlete. And um, because I was his first child and I was a girl, he always wanted a boy. Right. So he threw me into athletics because he was passionate about it. And, you know, he wanted me to be passionate about it too. So um, he was definitely my first coach. I played um, basketball with all the guys and I was the first female too. So I played basketball with all the guys. I had to play football with all the guys, baseball with all the guys. Like he raised me to be a tomboy, like very sports oriented because he was extremely passionate about sports. Um, That was my first introduction to sports through my father.
0: And did you grow up idolizing or looking up to any female athletes?
1: Um I think the only female athlete I can remember that I really looked up to was um Lisa Leslie basketball because that was you know that was my thing. I, I thought I was going to go to WNBA. How far yeah, did you take basketball? Yeah, I really believed I was. Um so I stopped playing basketball when I was a senior in college because um I just figured that team oriented sports was just not my thing because you know everybody's passion and drive is different and I hate to um I hate to like depend on people, so I was just like, "Yeah, I can't play this team sports <laughs> stuff." I want, you know, I want my successes and failures to fall up on me. So that's when I was I took the track.
0: How did you land on the hammer throw?
1: So when I was in high school, I was recruited to do the multi events and triple jump. So I got my scholarship to college in triple jump and um, the multi events. And then one event is the, um, is the shot put. So the shot put coach, he was coaching me just in that particular event. And he was just like, why don't you try hammer throw? And I was just like, no, I'll just stick to, you know, my triple jumping and, you know, my hurdling, my sprinting. Like, I don't want to do, you know, I don't want to be specifically a thrower because I'm good at everything. And so he was like, well, you can be good at everything, but you can be world class in the hammer throw. i was just like, no, it's okay. No, I don't want to <laughs> do it. So my college coach convinced my high school coach, and my high school coach convinced me to try it. And in three months, I almost made the junior Olympic team. Three months of training it. So I was just like, okay, I can be pretty good at this.
0: At what point did you realize that you're sticking with this one? Because it's going to take you places.
1: <laughs> I feel like I realized that um, as a sophomore in college. Um, my my sophomore year, I won um, – every indoor event. So I won the shot put, I won the weight throw, and I ended up getting fifth in the triple jump. So I was just like, okay, I'm winning the throws events, and I'm not as good as I was in a jump in. So that's when I just gave up the jump in, and then I just went straight to hammer throw.
0: Did you realize at the time, I guess now, when you started making national teams, just how big that stage is? Because, you know, you finally did capitalize on the moment in 2000, you've made an Olympic team, but then at the same time in 2019, that's when your biggest, I guess, moment in athletics came to be. So did you ever, were you always aware of just how many people have their eyes on that stage?
1: I don't think I ever thought about it because, you know, I'm the one performing per se. So um, I didn't think about it and I didn't think a lot of people knew who I was or followed Hammergron because, I mean, it's Hammergron. It's one of the um, the the least sought out disciplines in track and fields. You usually have people knowing who the jumpers are, who the sprinters are, but hammer throwing, people don't even know what that is. So, yeah, I definitely didn't realize how many people, um, you know, honed in on those moments and, you know, focused on what I did.
0: It breaks my heart a little bit to hear, you know, because everyone – says they love track and 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 well specifically track and field when when they specify the sport but that field part often gets forgotten is it a little
1: absolutely sort of
0: dismaying sometimes sort of to feel like you you are in one of like the lesser or po- less popular events of the sport because what what is that like I know during the trials like sometimes you guys are just far off in your own you know space and like No not as many fans are gonna go and watch.
1: Absolutely. So like as far as any competition, we're always last always first, or we always have to have our own day, or we always have to be in a different venue, or we often aren't even invited to, you know, these, you know, diamond leagues and world leagues, and we're not even included. So it does get pretty frustrating and it's pretty hard because you know, if we're not invited, if we're not included, if we're off into a whole nother, you know, area um it does affect our performance one and i also believe it does affect our financial stability you know if you're not in field, in-house selling tickets you don't get paid a lot and that's just the truth of the matter
0: you even mentioned to me before uh in our first conversation it was just like the you all, you've, you've always held another job while you're competing in track how do you balance yeah. that that sort of like both workloads at the same time
1: you know what i don't even know like i think to myself like my competition isn't working a job my competition doesn't have you know they don't have children yet you know they don't have, they don't have they don't have these responsibilities or lack of income to where they have to do a thousand things and still perform and still be at their best um I really don't know. Like, it was it was pretty hard because right now I'm not working, obviously. But um, when I was working, I used to, I remember I used to um, go to practice around like 11 o'clock in the morning and then probably be done around, uh, you know, 2 o'clock. Then rush home, take a shower, and then go to one job and then go to another job. Like, it, it was, it was always constant going, no sleep, no rest. I was never at peace or at ease. Like, I really don't know how I did it.
0: <laughs> run me through Looking some of sad. these jobs like what, what, what were some of the jobs that you had to double with
1: so um I, my favorite job i used to work at insomnia cookies so it was um it was a place that stayed up until three o'clock in the morning and because naturally i am a night owl i feel like it was good for me to uh to work there because you know i'm up anyway so i might as well be making money so i used to go door to door delivering cookies to three o'clock in the morning
0: <laughs> that's wild no one ever pieced it together <laughs> yeah. that, like, you know, this is a an Olympian or anything like that.
1: Right? No one ever. No one ever noticed. And I, it was crazy. Is I had the Olympic rings on my wrist, so I'm handing people cookies with my Olympic rings, and no one even noticed. It was like, okay,
0: <laughs> that's that's so funny to me because track stars aren't like the the biggest stars, and that kind of like brings you to, sort of like a little bit of the project that I released with Sports Illustrated and. The things that are sometimes said to these athletes when you just take away sport from it, because this was sharing the experiences of black track and field athletes, but just in America, like if you take away the sport component to it. And it's crazy to me because if you think about it, like these are some of the top athletes in the world. Some of these encounters with racism, you would just never – think that someone would have the balls to say something like that to like a LeBron James to their face because it's just crazy to me and right, the right. experiences are just so they were so heartbreaking uh, to to hear for you I guess I'll relay the same exact questions what was your first encounter or your biggest or most impactful encounter with racism that has shaped you to the person that you are today
1: um <clears throat> For me, I've, I've probably had a lot of encounters, but I can't remember because for as long as I can remember, I've always been racially profiled. Like the schools that I went to when I was younger, majority of the people in the school were white. So I was always having to speak for the black people or the black girl. Um, I was always looked at a certain way because I had a big nose. I had a different type of body. I had different lips. Um, you know, parents always had to advise their kids. Well, you know, don't, you know, watch out for her or she, she lives here. So you probably can't hang out with her. You can't go to her house. You, you know, you can't go to a sleepover if she's having a sleepover. And then, especially when I got pregnant, it really was bad. You know, I was the friend who was, uh, you know, was fast or uneducated or this and that. And I just feel like my whole life I've been racially profiled, but I can't remember a specific instance because I feel like they happen all the time, even to this day. I'm often called the N word, you know, I'm often called the black B, you know, I mean, I I feel like I get it every day. (laughs) Every, every day is something new.
0: And these are in person and also online.
1: Yes, absolutely. Especially in person. I feel like it's easier for anybody who is white to um to step to a black female um rather than a black male you know they're not going to step to a black man but they'll step to a black woman in in a second
0: so it's so tough to hear that because it's like you just don't want that for anyone
1: right absolutely and, and it makes you not even know sometimes like who you are because you don't know why it's just like why do people look at me like this when this is just how I was born, what's the, what is the problem with it? Like I couldn't decide these things. So like, why is it, why is it a problem? It's crazy if you think about it.
0: Yeah. And the other point that I think when I was talking to Aisha Pratt, it was just like, I said, I said to her, God willing you don't ever have to encounter anything like that ever again. But if it does happen, how do you expect yourself to react now, just sort of like given the climate of the times? And I think what she said was just like, I would just want to have a conversation with that person. You know, kind of, you know, there's there's tempers and emotion and maybe you obviously feel like really sad immediately that it happened, but it's just really questioning that person as to why. Why would you do that? Why would you say something like that? Have you been having sort of like conversations with people over the past, you know, two or three weeks?
1: Um, I've had conversations with a lot of people just from interviews and doing Zooms um, with college kids. I just literally got off the phone um, from a Zoom conference with some college kids. And um, I feel like the, the most important thing, um, and I don't know if we talked about this before, but the most important thing that white people have to realize is that this is reality. And this is the reality that you created. So let me say that I always tell white people, you created this problem. You and your ancestors and the system that protects you have created this problem. So let's be real. You have to face that. You have to acknowledge that. And you have to take full accountability for that. You have to self-educate yourself. Black people cannot keep on telling white people, this is how you should treat me. White people should say, how do you want to be treated? You know, what? what should I do or self-educate themselves to know how to treat people it's not that hard but I feel like because white people are so uncomfortable and they're so on edge and they do not want to accept reality they they just give up or they just turn the other cheek or they just say oh this is not real or they don't even get involved I feel like that's the that's the the thing I've been saying for the last two weeks a lot is take accountability. We are tired of educating you, and we are tired of getting racially profiled and racially discriminated against. We're tired of being killed. We can't do both. White people have to take the burden. They have to take the load. And I've been saying that the last two weeks definitely a hundred percent help us because we can't do it by ourselves.
0: When when you're talking to these College kids, what questions are they asking you?
1: Um, so um, let's, for example, this morning, um, a lot of kids asked me, you know, how, how did I get started into activism or how did I know that um, I wanted to be the voice of change? Um, that was a really good question. Um, some college kids asked me, what should they do? Because they're still in college and they might want to protest or they might want to speak out. So they asked me, um, what what should they do going forward or how should they display their message to where, you know, they don't lose their scholarship or they don't lose, you know, they don't get kicked out of school or what have you. Um, they've also asked me questions like, um, of course, you know, how how did I get started in my career? And, you know, what made me want to be a hammer thrower? And honestly, what made me want to stay in the sport? Because, you know, track and field is a hard sport to stay in. It's not a business per se. Everything is voluntary in track and field so it is hard to stay in and maintain financial stability. So we had those types of conversations.
0: Someone was saying, I think I saw this floating around on social media. It was like, I think, you know, society could take an example out of, you know, the way track and field operates and how it just welcomes people of all, you know, races and and all these body types and all these different talents. But to an extent like it's that's being I think a little bit ignorant of just like there is also racism in the sport have you experienced that
1: absolutely i feel like it's just childish to think that just because track is for can be for everybody it doesn't mean that there's you know there's not racism there it's there's people that you compete against that hate your guts because of the color of your skin they hate how good you are because of the talents that you do from um you know genetics so I just I feel like you know that's it's just it's just crazy to to for people to believe that just because track welcomes everybody doesn't mean that there are still issues.
0: So we ran through kind of the process of how you went about protesting in 2019, and, and then there was you, I asked you if you would do it again, and you said yes, you would. And, you know, given the fact that next year your probation is technically up uh, this summer, what's the, actually, first off, what's the latest on that? After you had this conversation, what was that like? And then also, you know, you're still on probation, right?
1: I'm still on probation. So um, after I had a conversation with Sarah, basically during our conversation, you know, she did apologize. You know, she did let me know um, how ignorant she was. Um, and I let her know that her ignorance was not welcomed, and uh it was distasteful and I let her know how her personal um her personal reprimand on me um how that affected my family and my life and um i, I don't think she knew that, which is still crazy to me because you're the c e o of u s a and there's a lot of black people that compete for Team s a so um yeah, I just I I didn't really care about her apology. I just wanted her to hear me out, and I got the opportunity. But, um, yeah, my punishment, I'm still on probation and races, too. And uh, I don't think they're going to lift that because to them, it, it, it may not even be that important because there is no Olympic Games this year. They put us on probation because of the Olympic Games. They just wanted us to be quiet and perform there so I don't see them lifting it
0: have there been any sort of discussion so far among pro athletes because you know you're definitely one of the leaders in sort of just how you demonstrated and kind of going forward what some of the thought process might be for something like next summer I know they're talking about you know you're not allowed to to kneel uh, at the podium but then also the IOC is feeling a little bit of pressure because you know they're kind of also just trying to justify it. Yeah. So yeah. It's like, the heat is on them. But when I was talking yeah. to Will Clay, for example, he said to me, he's like, you know, if you're representing the United States and it's not representative of what you believe, he's like, then there's a chance I might sit this out and like not, not compete for the US. Then there's other people who are saying, you know, I'm Grant Holloway, for example, told me he's like, he's, I'm, he's going to wear an I can't breathe shirt when he's warming up for every meet. And, you know, there's these little demonstrations that are taking place. But in the back channels of, you know, just among all the athletes, what is the conversation like right now about next summer?
1: I feel like the conversation is just strictly about uh, probably three main points. What would happen if I do protest in the next one of the games? Um, number two would definitely be how can we find a way to peacefully demonstrate um, where we stand and what we believe in and demonstrate that racial inequality is a real thing in our country and affects our lives. And I think number three is if we, if the IOC does not change the rules, then how can the USOPC protect its athletes who choose to protest? Uh, Those are the three things that, us athletes are trying to talk about. Um, We're trying to get clarity on those issues and we're trying to come up with the plan. That's all I can say.
0: (laughs) A question that a friend of mine raised to me sort of after we released the article was sort of about your protest in particular. And it was like the treatment that you got from, you know, the USOPC and the, and the IOC here's, here's something to kind of think about is, do you think hypothetically if someone like Noah Lyles arguably the biggest sprint star in the sport right now for us does the same exact thing does he get that punishment
1: Absolutely not And why is he's that He's the face of the sport. He's the face of the sport. They need him in the sport. See me I'm just a hammer thrower. They don't need me. I don't generate the revenue. I don't, you know, I don't have the spectators to fill the dance, but he does. So I feel like if it was some somebody like no allows, uh, it would have been a different conversation and a different punishment, absolutely. And I think things would have moved faster uh, as far as changing of the rules and what rules, you know, need to be, you know, looked at. Um, I think it would have been taken more serious if it was no allows because of his profile.
0: He's a young athlete. There's going to be a lot of them, obviously, next summer. What do the young athletes on Team USA say need to know or take and sort of to bolster up, I guess, the confidence to express themselves? What what would you say to them?
1: Um, I would say, you know, think about everything. Um, Think about what you can potentially gain, what you can lose. Think about why you really want to do it and if it's worth it. And know that the IOC, they hold all the cards no matter what. No matter if you do it, if you don't do it, At the end of the day, the IOC holds the cards, but the athletes have the power. I feel like a lot of people don't understand that. If the athletes don't go to the Olympic Games, there are no Olympic Games. We we hold the power. They got the billions of dollars, and they got the cards, and they they have the rules. But they only can do that because we allow them to. Um, I think that's imperative for young athletes to know. Regardless, if everyone protests at this next Olympic Games, the IOC can do nothing because they need us. That's what we have to remember.
0: When you told Sarah Hirschland, I guess, about how it affected you, the listeners might be wondering, it's like, how exactly did it hurt you? Because, you know, it was, we we, we know about, I guess, losing out on sponsors, but how else was this painful for you?
1: I feel like it was painful for, me, painful for me just emotionally, like to know that here I am trying to stand for something in this country that affects me and people look, that look like me and they say, oh, well, you can't do that. You have to be quiet. It's just like, it's just taking away my voice and taking away who I am. So I feel like not only financially, but it hurt my spirit. It made me, it made me question why, why do I wanna actually compete for this country? Why should I compete for this country and wear this flag if they don't even support what's going on, if they don't even realize what's going on and see how it does affect us athletes. It just made me question a lot, but I think emotionally and spiritually that that was the biggest thing for me. I was just like, like Will Clay, I don't know if I want to put on this Jersey or hold this flag and say, I'm proud to be an American. And that's, that's, that's not a good feeling.
0: When we talk about the sponsors, you know, you said that you'd lost out on, what was it, like 80% or something like that of your sponsors last year?
1: Yeah, my income. Mm-hmm.
0: Since we spoke and there, you know, after you did a couple other interviews as well, there's obviously been like more attention brought to your story and sort of your protest. Yeah. Has there been any interest from sponsors?
1: Um, Not yet. Um, my My agent and I are working on that. But yep, nothing yet. So I'm still broke. (laughs) Let's hope we could change. For those who are asking, I am doing this for nothing. This is genuine. Um, I, I get nothing from this. So,
0: what's been the coolest response that you've gotten to everything? Is there another like athlete from a different sport or someone who's reached out?
1: Um, I feel like the coolest response I've gotten so far, I can think of two. So, um, Colin Kaepernick. His uh, foundation, they posted me, and they said they see, you know, that I'm doing what they told me to keep up the good work. You know, I talked to them and told them, I could, whatever y'all need me to do, you know, I'm in Houston, so if they start anything here, you know, I'm willing to help and be a volunteer um, to support that. And um, Michael Johnson, Michael Johnson hit me up, and he told me straight up, he's like, you did this when this was not popular. Like, this was not a trend when you stood up for what you believed in. You stood up for our people. So he said he respected me for that, and I was just like, "Wow, that was cool."
0: With regards to Kaepernick, I want to put you in another hypothetical situation. You get to sit across from him. What do you ask him, or what do you want to talk about?
1: Everything. <laughs> Honestly, I just want to ask. I really want to ask him about how he was raised and, um, you know, just his that just his background because I feel like if you know um a lot of a lot from somebody's uh upbringing then you know um you can kind of go from there i feel like i want to ask him how he was raised um how different things that he saw in his neighborhood or in his life affected him and impacted him and what made him finally um you know take a stance like because you know he was he was in the league for quite some time before he actually um stood up he, i mean he actually protested so I want to know, like, what happened in, in that, like, in that in-between states, like, what made him really want to do it.
0: Definitely. All right. Before we move to the final questions that I ask every guest, I've got one thing I'd like to pick your brain on. You know, with so much attention right now on the Black Lives Matter movement, is there one particular foundation or charity um, that you want to highlight or underscore that people can donate or give give to?
1: Um. I feel like there's so many, um, but I, I think um, Buying Back the Block, I feel like that's a really good one. Uh, you can Google it because I feel like what they do is um, they build homes and houses for impoverished, neighborhood, um, and yeah, impoverished neighborhoods and poor people. So I think that's really, really important because just a roof over your head can change your life. You know, somewhere just nice to stay and somewhere uh, peaceful and quiet to stay can actually um, change someone's lives. So I think that one's, that's a really good one. And, um, you know, all the funds for the families who've lost, lost their loved ones. Um, definitely. I think, you know, those would be good funds to donate to as well.
0: Definitely. I'll include the links to those in the, in the show notes. All right. Final questions. I ask every guest, what's okay the meanest thing that you've read about yourself? Cause they don't really cover the throws on, on let's com, but I'm going to, so I'm going to go okay. meanest thing. that someone's DM you on Instagram.
1: Uh, the meanest thing that someone has DMed me on Instagram is that, um, they wish I was never born.
0: Jeez. You hate to hear that.
1: Yeah. They hate it. They hate my life. Like, it's crazy.
0: What's the funniest drug testing story that you've got?
1: Uh, the funniest drug testing story. (laughs) Um... Uh, my drug testing is pretty simple. I I think the funniest thing is, uh, like one time. One time it took me about like five hours because I had just used the bathroom before the drug testing people came, so it took me like five hours to pee again, and so they literally had to follow me everywhere. Like I had practice, I had to go to work. Like I literally had the lady like like with me in the cookie shop and it's time of your cookies, like waiting right to drug test me. And you know, she was eating cookies. She was chilling. Like she had to go on deliveries with me. It was, that was funny.
0: That's really that funny. Was yeah. But really, what a person must be thinking when the cookie delivery shows up and then there's also a drug tester next to them. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um. I you know what this is a kind of I always ask you, if you could go on a run anywhere in the world with anyone from history, assuming they could hold like a nice conversational pace with you, who would it be and where would this run take place? And that that's got me curious. It's like how much running goes into to your training.
1: So I don't run at all um, <laughs> during off season. Sometimes I might do like a ten minute jog, a fifteen minute jog. But um, yeah, I don't run because like for throwing, it's it's kind of like we're running in the circles. You know, it's kind of like that. Um, but if I was to go on a run, I would definitely be in Australia. Of course, it's beautiful there. I love it there. And who would I go with? If I can go with anybody. For me, um, who would it be? I got so many people. I think I would go on a run with, I mean, this might be cliche, but... I, I, I would want to pick Malcolm X's brain. That's a good Because he was a genius. He yeah. was a rebel and he was a genius.
0: That's so, a great yeah. answer. All right, final yeah. one. has nothing to do with running, and I can already assume a little bit of how you're going to answer. You get 25 shots from half court. If you make one, you win $25 million. If you don't make any, you'll go to jail for 25 years. Would you attempt the shots?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I, I figured you've worse. got
0: you've got enough of a basketball background where I'm confident you might be able yeah. to make one in twenty five. But
1: Oh yeah. I can if I don't make one in twenty five, then all the years of basketball training have been for nothing.
0: Yeah, and that's also the risk taker, I guess, in you and, and you know, the competitive athlete. But you know, there's Part of me is also just kind of like, I don't know if it's worth the price. 25 million is not my price of freedom, I think. So I don't think I would take the shots, but I know you've got the experience for it. Um, so that, yeah. that'd be fun to watch. Um, Gwen, yeah. thank you so much for doing this.
1: Thank you for having me, I appreciate it.
0: Many thanks to Gwen for taking the time to chat if you listen to this and enjoyed the episode, give us a shout out on your Instagram stories. We will repost it to all our followers, and that helps new people discover the show. As always, I'm always thankful for when people leave a review on Apple Podcasts, that also helps improve our rating on the charts. Many thanks to Gooder for sponsoring the show and coming through and believing in us after going through the past couple months on a little bit of a sponsorship freeze due to the pandemic still grinding to get these conversations out to you so show some love for the sponsors and pick up a pair of the most affordable performance running sunglasses visit gooder.com sidious that's g-o-o-d-r.com slash sidious to check out some of my favorite lenses and styles i've been your host chris chavez wishing you some happy and healthy running legs are feeling good eyes are feeling gooder